past several weeks, we've been going through uh, an Advent series. We've been going through several of the themes of Advent as we celebrate and anticipate the arrival of our Lord. But now we're, we're getting back to what we were doing before Thanksgiving, back, in, uh, back through, what, September through November? So we're back in our sermon series in the book of Daniel. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Daniel chapter 5. That's going to be our text this morning. And let me introduce myself. If we, if we have never met before, my name is Lucas Turner. Uh, I work over at a church in, in Colleen called Grace Bible Church Colleen. I've been helping go through this series for the past several weeks, so glad to be here again today. And while you're turning there, uh, I don't want to brag too much about myself, uh, but I had a pretty good week of sermon prep. It, it, was, it was good. Uh, you know, at, throughout the week, there are all these kind of points where you want to be at this level of you know, completion by this day or this time, and, and I was able to hit those. I was able to spend a good amount of time preparing in the text, and in all of that work, I could not get to a happy, happy ending in today's text. Um, we're, we're, this is a tough text, a, a tough chapter to go through for several different reasons. We're going to see new faces. We have to do kind of some historical homework to really kind of get a picture of what's going on. But, but really, what makes today's sermon hard is that it's going to make us uncomfortable. You know, it, it confronts those parts of our lives that we want to keep deep down, keep them hidden at all costs. I mean, is anybody here familiar with, with, that, with that feeling deep down in your stomach when you're worried that your secret is about to get out? Or, or of being found out, or like, like I called the sermon this morning, of being found wanting. I, I know that I've felt it before. I, I, I can speak personally to that. Back when I was a, a freshman in high school, uh, I, was, I was in the Boy Scouts, and I, I think one week we had an assignment due. We were trying to finish up a merit badge, and so part of this was we had to create little miniature kind of homemade terrariums. So, you know, put some dirt in there, some grass, some bugs, cut some holes in there, set it outside, and then kind of observe it for a week, and, you know, we'd get back together and kind of go over what we saw. You know, that was just part of the assignment. Well, truth be told, uh, freshman in high school Lucas, uh, just like 31-year-old Lucas, sometimes has a bit of a problem with procrastination. And so uh, I realized, uh, to my horror, um, that I was not ready. You know, we, we met every Friday, or sorry, every Monday evening at 5 o'clock down at the VFW. And at about 3.30 that Monday afternoon, I came home from school and realized I had completely forgotten to, to get this done. So I... I, I did what any teenager would do. I, I, I went and threw some dirt into a little bit of Tupperware, threw some grass in there, scribbled down some, uh, some observations, and went there hoping for the best. Um, had, had a bit of that weird feeling. I, I, something wasn't right. And I get down there, and you could very easily see why you wanted to do this for at least a week or so. Because the natural process, if you go do this on your own and you actually observe this, it builds up all sorts of condensation. We had extra bugs uh, that, would, that would come into this little terrarium, and, and mine was just clear as day, and something looked completely different. Um, you know, I, I, and worst of all, in my opinion at least, looking back is I tried to offer really weak excuses for it. I, I tried to say, well, you know, I put it in the shade, or, or you know, I, I, this is why mine looks a little bit different. You know, I, I lied about it. I, you know, something that I still remember to this day. I remember it so clearly because that feeling, you know, that, that dread, that fear of being found out, of, of not measuring up, of, of not being good enough, of, not, of, of being found wanting, that still sticks with me so clearly. And that same fear, you know, that I think that I have, I, I think that's something you have because I think it's something everyone has. It, it's a response to our natural state our sinful state that we are deep down ashamed of, that we are embarrassed of. 
We don't want to come face to face with our shortcomings. And so I think today's text is a great illustration of the lengths that we will go to to try to forget the past and and hope that judgment never comes for us. But Daniel is a powerful and and a wise reminder today that such a plan, it's it's foolish and that there is no way that we can hide from the Lord. The living God of Israel is the same one that we must answer to today. And rather than turning and hiding and and running away from his reign as our hearts want us to do, the call for us today is to joyfully submit to the loving lordship of our king. There's no aspect of our lives that he does not already control. So rather than fighting God, my hope for us today is that we embrace him. He is good to us. You know, one of the sweet older men at our church in Colleen He's really well known. If you ask him how he's doing, he always answers the same way. He says, oh, better than I deserve. You know, isn't that true? You know, you know today we're going to see the very concept of grace, the foundation of the gospel message itself is good news for us today. And that news is that we are better off than we deserve. And as we make this turn into the new year, we're, we're going to spend some time going through some application. We're going to go through a list of seven things that you know I hope that we as a church could strive towards in the next year that, that could really shape our time together. Well, like I said, we are in Daniel chapter 5, and I'm calling the first section today, God Speaks. God Speaks. And and we'll see why pretty clearly in just a second. But really, uh, as I was preparing this week, I realized the timing could not have worked out any better for us to take a a, a break in the text so we could spend some time uh, focusing on Advent. And the reason I say that is there's actually a bit of break in the action between Daniel chapter 4, and Daniel chapter 5. And so it's, it's kind of like we're coming back into, after the Christmas season and whatnot, we're coming back into a, a completely different world here. Nebuchadnezzar, that guy that was in every single chapter, yeah, he, he's dead and gone. It, it's, he's, he's well outside of the picture now. And so we have a new ruler to deal with here. His name is Belshazzar. And for the longest time, critics who don't believe that the Bible is the word of God have used the character of Belshazzar as a way to say, this person doesn't exist. There's no proof that this ruler actually existed in history. You know, we have no records of this person. He's made up, and so you can't trust your little holy books. That, that's, that's what we call an argument from silence, and, and I would say that that argument actually doesn't hold up on its own. Uh, you know, we would say that, you know, just because we don't have, you know, his name graffitied on the side of an ancient building or, or some massive statue of him that, you know, that he doesn't therefore exist. Uh, it's, a weak, it's a weak argument, and it's one that's pretty common when trying to disprove Scripture, but I think it doesn't hold up on his own. But then, in a curious little turn, uh, a British archaeologist named John George Taylor found this little thing, hopefully it comes up, in 1853. Do we have it? Yeah, there we go. This is called the Nabonidian Cylinder, and it was commissioned by a Babylonian king named Nabonidus. So hang in with me here. I know we're getting into weird historical stuff. But right there in that second column, kind of that middle column right there, he talks about his firstborn son. And he says, And as for Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring, instill reverence for your great Godhead in his heart. And may he not commit any cultic mistake. May he be sated with a life of plenitude. So yet again, we have a small little piece of ancient archaeology that helps prove one little part of Scripture. And even without this, if this never existed, we can claim that we have a pretty reliable historical record just by having the Old and the New Testament themselves. They are actually great ancient sources of historical record. But this just gives extra weight to to what evangelicals, to to what this church 
has always claimed about the Bible, that it is God's word, and because it is his word, it is true. It's true historically, it's true morally, it's true theologically, all of it. The Bible is true because it comes from the God who is truth itself, who is truth himself. But from this cylinder, we get a little extra information. We know that Belshazzar took over Babylon about 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. So a lot of time has passed from, chapter, from the end of chapter 4 to the start of chapter 5. So let's see what happens next in verses 1 through 4 of Daniel chapter 5. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So much for dad's wishes for no cultic mistakes, huh? Uh, A little bit more of our background, historical background, is really important here before we dive into some of the text. So we know from what happens at the end of this chapter and from some other historical records that the city of Babylon was actually under siege at the time of this chapter being written. It it was under siege from the Persian king Cyrus. So if you've ever heard of King Cyrus, that's that's who's laying siege to this city. And so facing his own existential crisis, his own thoughts of survival, Belshazzar's response is to throw a party. And make no mistake here, this is idolatry and gluttony and vanity at at its most extreme and at its ugliest. In order to impress those people that he rules over, we have a king getting drunk in front of over a thousand people. And to top it off, he says, you know what? I'll show you guys that I'm a real fun guy. Let's go grab those religious trinkets from that one people we conquered a long time ago, and let's bring that in and let that be a part of the party. These vessels of precious metal were part of the Israelite priest's worship, and now it's being used as a toy by a child pretending to be a king. You're supposed to find this revolting, because guess what? The Jewish audience that originally read it certainly would have found it just that way. And then in the middle of this revelry and and overindulgence, God takes the stage. Picking up in verse 5, it says the following, Immediately, The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. uh, Some some linguistic scholars actually really dive into this. They think that knees knocked together is a a euphemism for he might have wet his pants. So, I mean, he was losing all control of his bodily functions here. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The parties come to a screeching halt. The fun's over. Even more seriously than if the Persians had broken through the city walls and had begun destroying the capital city of Babylon. And in language that, at least in my opinion, seems really familiar to chapter 2 earlier, 
we see that this message comes in and gives great fear to the ruler of Babylon. He cannot understand it, but you know what? He recognizes that something more greater than himself is at work here. Someone is in more control and more authoritative than, than the king of Babylon at this moment. It kind of reminds me of, of my time in the military. Uh, when I was in initial job training, you know, we were mixed up with people from all different branches. We had officers and, and enlisted guys all together learning the same thing. So we had a lot of, you know, a lot of downtime, and young soldiers do as young soldiers like to do. They tell their, their limited war stories, so the enlisted guys really got to talk a lot about their time in basic training. I never got that fun experience. Uh, I was in ROTC, uh, but I couldn't help but notice, and, and Nathan or maybe a couple other of y'all here, tell me if I'm wrong later on, but it seems like uh, after talking to all these different guys, there is no greater authority figure alive today than the drill instructors who train U.S. Marines. Uh, I think I grabbed a picture of some, uh, some prisoners, I mean recruits, uh, that are uh, about to start. Uh, I think any Marine re- recognizes those yellow steps. They're painted. Uh, this, I believe, is in Paris Island, South Carolina, but either there or in San Diego, California. That's where you initially learn how to stand at the position of attention, and uh, really the rest of your life is dictated to you for the next, what, nine or, nine or ten weeks. So, uh, but, but yeah, like Belshazzar, these recruits have to realize that they are no longer the master of their own destiny. They have lost all autonomy, and honestly, the sooner they realize it, the better. Belshazzar realizes this to a degree, but guess what? He doesn't understand the meaning of the message. An interpreter is needed, and, and although we know who, who's going to be called on, I mean, th- this book is named after him, you know, we got to remember a, a lot of time, up to three decades has gone, gone by since the events of chapter four. So there's a lot of people in this party that have no idea who to call on. Help is nowhere to be found, and the, the normal panic of a group not knowing what is coming next is starting to grip the party. And this fear makes enough noise, causes enough of a stir to draw the attention of an unnamed queen who helps us somewhat as we move this story along. In verse 10, it says, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom who is in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him the chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Uh, sorry, because of an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men... The enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you, give, you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. We finally have our old friend back on the scene here, and I do mean old. I mean, just doing some of the historical math, it's, it's very likely that Daniel is in either his 70s or his 80s at this point. He is an old man. And, and for some reason, I just 
love having this image of a really grumpy man getting woken up in the middle of the night, having to come down to this crazy party because people are, are, are asking for him. You know, he probably isn't happy hearing from these people at all. But then guess what? He sees the vessels of temple worship that were probably in the same caravan that brought him from that original exile so many years ago. And so very easily, he could have been put in a form of rage or just complete distance from this. He could have said, you know what? You guys are on your own. I'm not going to help out. Good luck. You know, whatever, whatever is going on. And honestly, I don't think we could blame him. But before we get to what Daniel says to the king, you know, before we hear what God speaks to Belshazzar, I want to, I want to ask a couple questions of ourselves based on this text. It's so easy to read these verses and think that you're Daniel. You, you know, you think to yourself, I'm this, I'm this wise sage. I'm, I'm this wise Jedi knight that everyone would call in to help fix this problem, right? You know, I, I would not be caught dead in a party like this, especially one that blasphemes God, right? But this is part, part of why I think this text is uncomfortable. It's important to remember that while not universally true, it's often true that in biblical stories, you and I, we're the bad guys. We're, 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 the, we're the weak ones. We're the angry ones. We're the ones that tend to worship things other than God. So here in this story, guess who you and I are? We're the ones at the party. I'm, I'm Belshazzar. I, I'm the one caught in excess and abundance and feast and self-worship. It's you and I that need to hear from Daniel. We need to hear God speak to us, which is why what he has to say up next is so pertinent to us. But as we apply this to ourselves, as we think how this you know, influences our own lives, my question is really simple. Are we prepared to hear from the Lord if he speaks to us? Or would it cause us to respond like Belshazzar does here? You know, a lot of times we think that, you know, we just really want to hear from God by having him do something miraculous, something like writing on the wall so we can literally read it and go do it. That, that's all we need, right? We want the extraordinary. And yet, guess what? He's extraordinarily given and preserved his word for us to have at our disposal at any time, at, at, any, at any need. We have it right here. Or when we think of, of maybe the second coming of Jesus, or, or when we think of, of God speaking to us or commanding something in our lives, how often do we think really deep in our heart, no, not yet. I'm not ready. I'm, I'm not done having fun. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not done enjoying this moment. I'm not done doing what I want. Or would we be able to receive the word of God with reverence and humility like Daniel does? I know I just said, don't compare yourself too much to, to the hero of a story, but, but what about Daniel's reputa- reputation? You know, how was he described? Was, was he described as having the spirit of the holy gods within him, what, what we now know to be the Holy Spirit within him? What about you? What about, what about myself? Do we have that Holy Spirit within us? Are we so overwhelmingly wrapped up in the things of God that people around us see us differently and describe us as, you know, maybe even describe us as the word godly, which means it's impossible to describe a person without naming the God that they worship? Or are we too wrapped up in, in worldly things? That, that Are we so wrapped up that, you know, eternal things or spiritual things make us uncomfortable? How do we get more comfortable with, with the eternal? How do, how do we get more comfortable with the, uh, with the spiritual realm? Well, I'll get to that in, in just a bit at the end of the sermon, but the big takeaway here is that we need to be people who are more willing to part with the world and, and to seek out God rather than reject God and cling to worldly things. That's how we can prepare ourselves for when God speaks to us. So that's our first section, God speaks. 
And, and that fits into the bigger theme of being found wanting, because without hearing from God in the first place, you or I might go on in some sort of blissful ignorance, not ever having to deal with the realities of someone or something greater than ourselves speaking into our lives. Deep down, we hope that we never have to hear from God because it might go like it does for Belshazzar here. Rather than praises and pats on the back and, and saying, good job, you did great. The king in this text faces the worst, that, worst thing that you or I could ever imagine, judgment at the hands of a holy God. The second section of this text is just that, God judges. Read this with me in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another, saying, I don't, I don't need that stuff, those trinkets that you promised me. Nevertheless, I, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys." He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have given up yourself, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. If we are so far removed from the events of chapters 1 through 4 of Daniel, it's highly likely that a good part of this audience here would not have known about those prior events. To them... Nebuchadnezzar was just one of these kings who, who made Babylon great, and the best they could hope for was a return to a similar greatness in their own day. <clears throat> but look at how Daniel frames such, I'm putting in air quotes, greatness. This is important, especially in our politically obsessed uh, culture and church today. Verses 18 to 21 show that greatness as a ruler, as a king, as, as a president, is something that can only be given by God and can just as easily be taken away. It does not originate within ourselves. We are not great on our own. So whether you love, <clears throat> you love the last guy and don't like the current guy, or maybe the other way around, don't put too, mu too much weight on those whose greatness is not their own. God is saying, no matter who you're subject to, don't forget that I'm the one behind them. Honor your kings and, and obey your governments, but worship me. And at times, you know, my judgment, God's judgment might be to bring them low, to, to make them seem as simple animals out in the field. And, and that might be a judgment because it's, it's deserved and, and an expression of God's righteous judgment against sin. Or it might be for a greater redemptive purpose. I, I actually believe, and there's debate on this, uh, that based on the end of Daniel 4, 
And then verse 21 here, that, Daniel, or that Nebuchadnezzar ended up in a position of saving faith. He was humiliated. He was distressed. He was brought low. He, he was put in his place by God. But I think he eventually moved into proper orthodox knowledge of God here. But don't lose the forest for the trees, okay? The big theme here is Daniel's indictment against pride. He recounts the pride of Nebuchadnezzar before and how he was brought low. But then he turns from storytelling to accusation. He says, you, you king, right now, you are just as proud as your predecessor. And that word that is used a lot for father, it's not actually the Hebrew word father. You might have a note down in the bottom of your, of your scripture that says, you know, it actually means predecessor or someone who came before you. So it's kind of like how we use the familial word, you know, for father when we talk about the, the first people that founded our government, the founding fathers, something like that. But, but just like the king who came before Belshazzar, Daniel is saying, God is speaking through Daniel saying, you are proud and the time has come to face it. This is a hugely important point that's picked up on many different times and in many different points of Scripture, but I think it's most poignantly described in Proverbs 3.34 and then later quoted in James and 1 Peter with the simple but powerful contrast. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride is a dangerous drug, a demon that we all wrestle with and will have to confront throughout our lives. And we have to deal with it. It cannot be left alone or somehow compartmentalized in our lives. We cannot take our pride with us and hope to leave it on the outer walls of God's kingdom as we walk in. The only talk of pride after death in the scriptures is that of destruction. Proverbs 16, 18 is a common but crucial verse. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we all have things to be proud of, to, to, to take pride in, whether we realize it or not. We, we, we live in the richest and, and, and most accomplished society in the history of mankind. We, we have achieved some of the greatest technological ex exploits in the last 50 years from the previous thousands of years. And you know what? It's very likely that, that my children and, and, and the children here are going to see some incredible achievements moving forward. And guess what? For us here in this church, we have even more. We live in Texas. Think about that. We, what a unique history to be proud of. We have Whataburger to go to whenever we want. We even have a great football team, a great professional team with all sorts of history behind us. Okay, well, you know what? The Texans aren't that good this year, but they're, okay, they'll be a little bit better. I'm sorry. I'm kidding about that last part. I can't say good things about the Cowboys. Uh, but, but anyways, sorry. The truth is, there, there is something to be proud of just based on, on where you live or what you do. This church, by, by merely surviving these past six months, has something to be proud of. That's good. God has shown his faithfulness continually here, and that's good to have been a part of that. But look down at verse 22. The moment that we cross over and go into Belshazzar's territory, the moment that that pride becomes something that puffs us up and makes us think that we don't need to depend or rely on God, that becomes sin. And sin is deadly. Kill your pride before it kills you. If you have pride in anything, if you boast or brag about anyone, let it be in our Savior. Let it be in Christ, who died in our place so that we could, not, so that we could know God not only as a righteous judge, but as a loving Father. Brag in Him. Boast in Him. Make much of Him. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 give us a biblical lens for boasting when God says the following. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. 
Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. That is what good and healthy boasting looks like. And it gives us hope for ourselves. But the story does not end so well for Belshazzar. Let's read the rest of chapter 5 and see how this tension is resolved. Picking up in verse 24. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and what? Found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And yet that night, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Belshazzar fails the test. The words Mene, Tekel, and Perez, those are Aramaic words. And the Babylonians knew or had some familiarity with the Aramaic language. But when Daniel comes along, he gives the meaning behind them. He says, Mene, your days are numbered. God's judgment is about to be executed upon you and upon the kingdom that destroyed Jerusalem. I preached a few weeks ago, whenever they were first exiled, that God tried to speak comfort to them and said, I will judge, I will hold accountable the Babylonians that are exiling you right now. Well, guess what? When I said it back then, it's still true. Judgment delayed is still judgment delivered. Guess what? Here it is. Tekel. This is where we get our sermon title. The great fear all of us have is this, that you've been measured up and you are not good enough. That you have been found wanting. That you're a fraud, a fake, an imposter, and God has just made it known to everyone. And then punishment comes in Perez. Just like, you, just like you, your nation, Babylon, has conquered and destroyed others, now I will use other nations and other kingdoms to destroy you. Mene, Tekel, and Perez. The ideas behind these words should haunt all of mankind. And the reason is that they are objectively bad news. There is no hope found in them. We are crushed by that reality. And the reason is that because, uh, sorry, there's no hope in them because we don't measure up. We cannot hope to save ourselves or even to try to find salvation when left to our own strength or our own capacity. But God. My favorite verse in the Bible starts with those two words. But God, because of the richness of his love and his grace and his kindness and his mercy and his favor, he did not leave us to squander in Mene, Tekel, and Perez. He grabbed us up and he raised us up and he seated us next to him because of the righteousness that Christ has earned on our behalf. When the judgment of God comes to all of mankind, Romans 8.1 makes it clear that we will not face condemnation because we are now in Christ. We are united to Christ. When God sees us, he sees the righteousness that we could never own, uh, earn, but that was earned on our behalf. And if you're here today and, and you, you know, would say that you don't believe in Jesus or, or you're not sure about this, this God thing, I, I, I beseech you, I beg you, look, look at God before it's too late. Turn from your sin and your pride and your vanity and look upon the Savior who, who could be all you ever want and all you ever need. 
Rather than indulging, look at the one who sacrificed for you. Look to Jesus. Place your faith, your trust in him, and you will not have anything to fear at the, at the righteous and holy moment when God judges. And as the last few verses show, the judgment of God was, in this case, imminent and, and immediate and swift. I've always wondered you know, what Daniel kind of thought to himself when he woke up the next day and, and heard the news of the king being killed and saying, whoa, God, you weren't kidding. That, that was fast. You know, just as quickly as he arrived on the scene, Belshazzar is gone. He's removed, and and a new king is put in his place. Well, we think Darius is a proxy ruler for Cyrus the Great. Now, Darius is going to be really important in our next chapter, in chapter 6, but the short of it is that we see, just like verse 22 promised us, that no leader or no ruler ascends to power outside of the purposeful sovereignty of God himself. That's what it looks like in real time when God judges. So as, as we begin to wrap up this, our, our time in this text this morning, I've, I've kind of left the, the how-to or, or the what next for the end. How are we to end up like Daniel and not Belshazzar? I mean, I know, I know, we, we should see more of our, ourselves in the latter rather than the former, but, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to emulate those biblical models that we have at our disposal. And I think Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, certainly give us some help here. When we first introduced this series, you know, I preached an introductory sermon from Jeremiah 29, where God speaks to the Israelites as they go into exile. And God gave the Israelites this plain, basic advice. He says, live good lives that honor me always. You know, seek the goodness and the welfare of the city in which you live, or in this case, the city which you have been exiled to. And I think that's the same call for you and I today especially as we move into the new year, when everyone's making resolutions or big plans or, or big goals for the next 12 months, I, I'm going to humbly submit the following seven ways that you and I in this church could commit to living quiet, humble lives that seek the benefit of our community and honor God always. Some are very basic and practical, very black and white, and then some are kind of harder to measure, but, but no less important. So uh, seven ideas. Number one, scripture intake. From the very first time that Lindsay and I visited Renewal Church, it was abundantly clear that this is a community that has a strong desire for God's Word. That is good, and you are to be commended for that. But guess what? That can never decrease in importance or practice. If you look back through Israel's history, almost all of Israel's kings that were seen as wicked or doing evil in God's eyes had a, had a tepid or, or a lukewarm relationship with God's Word. Individually, you and I must commit yet again to read and meditate upon Scripture. And I would argue that this is a daily exercise. Jesus put it best when he said that man does not live on bread alone, but on the very word of God himself. And if you've never read through the Bible before, if, that, if that's kind of scary or, or daunting, let me encourage you, not discourage you. This can be the year. I've done several different reading plans over the years. The, the Robert Murray McChain, a chronological reading plan, the, the Grant Horner system, or, or just going cover to cover. I'd love to discuss. If you've never read through the scriptures all in one year, I'd love to help out that this could be the year for that. But whatever it is, we must be in God's word daily because it is the surest and the clearest way that we have that God has spoken to us. Number two, prayer. I would make the argument that if you only have time for one or the other, if you only have time to pray or to read God's word, I would say read God's word first because we know for sure this is how God has spoken to his people. But honestly, I doubt that a single one of us are too busy to pray. 
You know, if you're a seasoned prayer warrior here, great, keep it up. We need you. Teach us your ways. I need help in this as well. You know, but if, but if you're here, maybe on the other side, and praying feels awkward or, or something you just try to do real quick before you fall asleep at night, you know, let me encourage you, find that time. Maybe it's in the morning, or, or, or maybe it's when, when you're on a break from work or, or school. Maybe it's at lunch or at meals. But you know what? There are all different ways that we could get after it as well. You could pray, uh, practice praying the Psalms or praying with a spouse or a friend or, or, or call someone, and y'all could spend time in prayer together. I can promise you, though, one of the biggest lessons I've learned as a parent is that you never really tire of hearing your kids excitedly talk to you. But, but as a fallen dad, there, there are times where, you know, I, I get impatient or I get a little tired. But guess what? That, that's a very small, imperfect image of a father that wants to hear from his children. And so wherever I get tired or impatient, our good father never tires of hearing from you. So what I mean by that is keep praying. Worship God in prayer. Take your complaints to God in prayer. Seek God's guidance in prayer. Confront your sin with God in prayer. All of it. Live your entire life while praying to a father who wants to hear from his children. Number three, silence and solitude. I grow increasingly convinced of the value of being in silence and solitude. You know, while we are social creatures who have learned over the past couple years just how much we need face-to-face interaction, we also have to fight for for one-on-one time with the Lord. And in our technological age, it's so easy to to shrink our little personal space and and just have ourselves and our phone. But guess what? As long as those phones are connected to, to anything outside of ourselves, we're not putting our attention where it needs to be. So for me, an example of silence and solitude is, is going to play a round of golf. You know, I can just walk quietly. I get to spend time praying. It's a great, you know, a great quiet time for myself out in God's beautiful creation. Usually, when it's in July, it's, it's, it's a little harder. Uh, but no, uh, but, but maybe that's not you. Maybe you don't like playing golf. Maybe it's just going out for a walk on your own. Or, or maybe it's just waking up early and, and having a, a drink of coffee or tea. But either way, a, a dedicated time of silence and solitude is a wonderful way to give that space for God to speak to us. And guess what? If at the end of that time it feels like God was silent while you were silent, guess what? It was still purposeful time spent in the presence of our Father. It is good and it is worthwhile. Number four, giving. God's people are a giving people. And I would argue that those in covenant relationship with the local church body have committed to support their local church financially. Again, talking about money can be really weird and awkward in the American church where we've kind of privatized that and said, that's really between you and God. We don't want to get involved there. I I would say no. While I would say the, the tithing system of the Old Testament is no longer in effect, I would say that the New Testament commands cheerful, sacrificial giving. You know, so, so give, give often, give sacrificially, and give joyfully. Number five, serving. This is an easy one because we have a model to emulate in Jesus Christ himself. We know that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. So if you aren't serving here at this church, let me encourage you, join a team. I mean, it sounds like the, the Setup and Teardown team needs some people to help. So if you're looking for a place, let me encourage you, start there. Next week even, they need help. And, and if there are neighbors or family members or coworkers that you could sacrificially serve and care for, do it. You know, not, not for anything other than just to care for them. 
And, and if somehow you're able to do it anonymously so that, so that they don't even know that, that, you know, it was a big event, but if it's a way to just reflect and share the love of Christ in some small way, it's worth it. Do it. If it involves your, your finances, your time, your resources, your energy, all these things that we try to keep close to ourselves, I would say it's better used in the service of others. Number six, hospitality. This has become a bit of a weird one, uh, even in evangelical culture. You know, we like being hospitable, but only when it really reflects well on us. You know, having a perfect house with the perfect meal so it can make the perfect Instagram picture. But, but that really only reflects well upon us, right? The biblical concept of hospitality is a little different, but it's very simple. It's two Greek words that are jammed together, philoxenos, love of strangers. So it, it, it's saying that, you know, we, those who may or may not have anything to offer us, we're still going to show the love of Christ to them. I would rather see churches like this think of hospitality as more of a strategic use of the blessings that God has given us to show in big or little ways the love Christ first showed us. So if it's simply meeting someone here at church and then saying, let me go buy you lunch uh, on Sunday afternoon, or if it's having an extra bedroom set up or having a couch ready just in case someone needs to crash for a few days, have it ready so that way we can show a love to others that we would otherwise not be inclined to do so. And finally, number seven, kindness. Although this is probably the hardest to measure, I hope that at the end of 2022, we can look back and say that we were kinder people to each other here and to those around us. All sorts of things sell in our media-driven world, but kindness is not one of them. Sure, you know, we, we like this idea of kindness that, you know, it's, it's like a picture or something of a, of a large pit bull being kind to some kittens that are playing around him. But that's all built on this, pre, uh, this presupposition that, that we're the big, strong pit bull and we just are, are showing how generous or how kind we are by not snapping at others. But guess what? I'm thinking more of a self-sacrificing kindness that defers to others, that shows honor to others, that outdoes another in honor to someone, even if that person, gasp, disagrees with us even if they're on the other side of the aisle, even if they're someone that we would not see eye to eye on anything else, we are kind to them. And let me just be frank, social media does not lend well to kindness. So guess what? If it comes, if it comes to being kind or social media, guess what? Get rid of your social media. Just get rid of it. My wife and I did it last year and we could not be happier with the results. My prayer for this people is that we are a kinder people this year. So that's it. Scripture, prayer, silence and solitude, giving, serving, hospitality, and kindness. I offer each of these methods not as a way to respond to God's grace with rules and legalistic language, but as a via gratia, as a way of grace. Each one of these, even those that require of us to give of ourselves or to serve others, are a way that we can actually experience the grace of God. You need to hear that. Experience, not earn the grace of God. And if we did each of these to a great degree, guess what? There's a chance that no one outside of Belton would ever hear about it, but it's still good and it's still worthwhile. There's a chance that it could never result in someone on the other side of the world ever hearing about the good news of Jesus, but it might. This could be the start of something great. This could be the year that you and I and Renewal Church, and Grace Bible Church, and so many other evangelical churches become so beholden to the good news of Jesus Christ saving sinners that the rest of those around us can't help but notice that something is different with us. It might mean healthier churches 
or it might mean more missions sent to the end of the world. It might result just in slightly better neighborhoods around us where neighbors are known and loved and cared for and pointed to an ultimate Savior, an eternal hope in Jesus himself. But no matter what, lives like this, both in the church and in our own lives, will not be found wanting. They will be God-honoring, Jesus-loving, and Spirit-led lives. And who knows, those, those just might be the lives that God uses to change the world this year. 